Hello and welcome to AMO Kenzoku episode 19. We are a group of four bubblegum crisis boomer otaku who want an excuse to talk about anime, manga, and any related subjects we find interesting. The Kenzoku are Sam. Hello. Nick. Hello. Mike. Hey, y'all. And I am Dylan. This episode is being recorded on the 6th of October, 2022. Today, we are continuing our foray into 80s and 90s OVAs, and we'll be discussing an OVA made in the early 90s about the early to mid 80s, Otaku no Video.、Uh, this will be a deep dive into the OVA, so there will be spoilers, and you have been warned for a thing that came out in 1991 Hashin! So, Otaku no Video、uh, came out two parts in. 1991, and it was、uh, the release. I believe the original premiere was at AnimeCon 91, and there w a s like seven people in the room or something. If that, yeah, yeah it yeah. was at some weird late night time slot, barely announced or something. I've heard like that. <laughs> I mean, yeah, if Mike, if Mike doesn't know, then <laughs> I don't know who was. Well, I mean, I knew at one point, I just don't have my source handy right now. Fair、um, enough. It's, it's just such a crazy thing that they would release this. And this was released from、uh, Gainax in 91. So this would have been, I think, just after, honestly, I didn't look this up if anyone else has, but I think this was basically just after they finished Nadia or just finishing up Nadia. Yeah. Should be. Yeah. yeah.、Um, Somewhere around there. With、uh, character designs by Sonoda. Who did character designs for Bubblegum Crisis and a bunch of other, bunch of other things, and then、uh, a ton of other design work from a lot of the other、uh, Gynex people? I think one of the interesting things in it is、uh, that there's a lot of commercial, I'll say commercial art in it, because it's a show that's about you know, a person becoming. Becoming an o- otaku there. And so they even show a lot of clips from、uh, primarily the clips are from Macross, but there's tons of posters from all sorts of shows and things that were clearly they had the posters up in their offices and drew them. But they drew them so freaking well that you look at it and you're like, oh yeah, this is exactly the poster because I've seen this poster a thousand times and it is precisely the poster. Can we get a, maybe a little? A brief summary of what the show is about? Well, sure, of course you can. We can do that for you, Sam.、Uh, so the show is uh, uh, about Kubo, who starts out in, as a freshman in college as a member of the tennis club and becomes disillusioned with that and gets sucked into an otaku circle. And becomes a leading member of that circle, dragging them、uh, forward and striving to become, as he calls it, the Ota King, the king, the king of Otaku. He does that with his main partner, Tanaka. Wow, it sounds really interesting. Yeah, it is. It's really fun.、Uh, it's two parts. The first one is, you know, they're both about 45 minutes.、Uh, as far as availability of it, The Blu rays are purchasable from Animego, which was the original company that has released it 
starting, I think their first release was either like in 91 or 93 of it, uh, very soon after it came out. And they've had the license and released it numerous times over the years with lots of nice liner notes. It's also available streaming on Retro Crush. You can get it on there. Uh, you do not have to pay for a premium service and it's fairly low advertising. I haven't, I've honestly been watching it on their web player. I haven't tried their apps yet, but uh, it's been way better than High Dive. So we'll take that. I mean, that's a not, a, that's a pretty low bar, <laughs> but I think, I don't, I think that put, doesn't give Retro Question of credit. Um, they have a really robust catalog and overall their layout and their web, whole web design is quite good, actually. I'm, very impressed with them yeah yeah their service i'm definitely looking forward to finding more fun stuff and watching things on there so the series uh the show uh starts taking place in 1982 and it has uh a lot of uh it it does a thing that i don't know that I've really seen any others where it cuts back and forth, spending almost equal time between the actual animated story of Kubo and these uh, portraits of otaku, which are live action interviews. I'm going to air quote interviews with a variety of otaku uh, that are into different things. And it was, it's such a crazy thing, especially the first time you see it, you're like, what is even happening here? Um, and it's it's really cool. Um, going back to my, because uh, I actually did have the notes here uh, for release time, which is that Nadia's original run was from uh, April 13th of 1990 to April 12th of 1991. And Otaku no Video, the first episode, 1982, was released on September 27th, 1991. And second episode, nineteen eighty five, was released on the twentieth of December, nineteen ninety one. So they must have was... started that like around as they were finishing up Nadia. I have to imagine. Yeah, it was probably, probably like directly back to back. This would be my guess. Just one note on the mismatch: the animation screenplay or the original screenplay for the animated parts was actually written by Hiroyuki Yamaga under even though it's credited to Toshio Okada. Oh, really? Oh, really? And huh. that the live-action parts were mostly scripted by the director of the live-action parts, who was a different person than the anime team. I'm blanking on the name right now. Well, that's a crazy statement you're making there, Mike, because these are definitely legit interviews. <laughs> <laughs> well, a few of them actually were. Like, the Garage Kid Otaku mostly was a legit interview, but... <laughs> and clearly the interview with the English, or, you know, the Western Otaku was a legit interview that they then wrote completely different subtitles for. I wonder if anybody has ever done, like, sound sampling and tried to, you know, extract as much of the actual... Because I was trying to listen to what he was saying, but obviously, you know, they, the the voiceover, of the Japanese voiceover for it was, was quite, you know, um, quite loud. So it was really hard for me to hear exactly what he was saying. But yeah, I, so I, because I was trying to see if they completely were just misquoting him or were just literally found... The, a random Caucasian person in Japan in, in the it was early 90s. Craig or... York, who was one of their General Products USA employees, and is named after a cup, and the character is named after a couple of other General Products 
USA employees, uh, Leah Hernandez and Sean, I'm trying to remember his actual name. Huh. So general, so continuing on this, oh, okay, so Howell. general products, GP. Yeah. So in the show, they start a company, uh, Grand Prix General Products, and please correct anything. I'm going to stay here. So the group that founded Gynax, the anime studio, kind of at the same time, or maybe even slightly before, made a I'm not even sure if it was under the same corporate auspices or if it was a different company called General Products where they were selling more physical products like garage kits and I think a bunch of other random merchandise. Like in one point in the show, uh, one of the characters is holding a mug, which is supposedly like one of the first uh, General Products products and is, you know, probably one of those collector-y, collector things. I think the things. garage kits were their first product. Maybe... Maybe we should explain what garage kits are as well, because that's probably a complete mystery to uh, people who weren't into, you know, hardcore otakudom from the. <laughs> but I mean, garage kits. I, I I guess they're still a thing, but I feel like precast PVC PVC uh, figures have completely taken over the market now. So. Um, I'm not great at explaining what garage kits are, but I was going to say that kind of. General Products was the first company that forked out of the group that came together to make the Daikon 3 and 4 conventions. Okay. And so it was more a retail store that opened up after Daikon 3 and was, I think, the first garage kit company to actually do legitimate licensing for the kits that they made but also had a store that sold garage kits, general science fiction merchandise, and they sold it through catalog as well as also selling the Daikon 3 and 4 merchandise. Um, And then you had the Daikon Films production team that went and formed Gynax itself after Daikon 3 and 4, and they were kind of connected, but not totally, though eventually Gynax bought out general products. I think in the late 80s or early 90s, and so they became one company. So pretty much the kind of the opening se- the opening sequence of uh, episode two, 1985, is more or less the origin story of general products in like two minutes. I mean, I would say like the whole first half of the thing is kind of the theme to mirror it a lot. Uh, not completely with like the Kubo uh, or whatever, but... Um, you read the uh, No Tenki memoirs, um, which you can is way out of print, but you can read it online. Um, nicely annotated, and they kind of go over this whole thing. It it just watching it now after having read the No Tenki memoirs is like wow, yeah, <laughs> totally different view of this when I than when I first watched it. So so I'm actually unfamiliar with No Tenki memoirs. What is it? It's basically the memoirs of. Uh, What's his name? I think um, it's Oshio Takada, I think. Uh, Yasuhiro Takeda. Uh, Yasuhiro yeah. Takeda, who was um, also involved in the Daikon 3 and 4 planning and was um, also starred in some of the Daikon films live-action toku spoof products um, as... A guy named Tenki, who, and it was kind of a ripoff of um, Kaiketsu Zubat. Huh. 
except and it just looks utterly terrible but it because they were doing it on you know minimal equipment minimal budget but it's kind of funny i wish i could ever find subtitles for it <laughs> oh no it's a really if you read the book yeah they talk about all this stuff like the this guy talks about the sci-fi club stuff and all the things that lead into basically forming um gynax including general products mm -hmm. uh making the daikon films yeah it's it's a really fascinating read and it's not too long uh and I'll put put a uh, link to it in the show notes, but it's yeah, it, it's it's totally like you see all the people. It, although the, again, the Kubo is very much not one of these people, but it's like he's like the uh, in the beginning at least is like the the straight man to the the Gynax crew almost, right? Like it's it's almost like they needed a, a protagonist to insert into their quasi autobiographical over right like these guys yeah. otherwise it would just be nothing but you know these these hardcore otaku and you need some you know the relatable air quotes like you said straight guy to kind of well he's also kind of a self insert of yam or based on yamaga himself at least a bit in that he's not ever really been a full otaku but yet He's definitely an otaku and hangs out with a bunch of otaku, but, you know, he's not quite fully there. So I think there was some of his experience being with the Gynax people while doing that. So did he, did Yamaga write it as in, I'm the, as like a script writer or writing? Out yeah, he wrote the or... script, though then there were changes between, you know, the script and the storyboard that other people did, but he handed over like the initial script essentially. I mean more the... like this, this certainly feels a lot like uh Okada Puff uh stuff, right? Like uh what's the other guy's name? Is absolutely these uh, seems like Okada to me. Yeah, it could also be, you know, very based on Okada. Yamaga claims that it wasn't, but who knows how that changed. Oh, I don't mean that screenplay and I don't mean that Okada is uh, represented by um, Kubo. I mean he's represented by um, boy. What's the other guy's name? I I can't remember now. Um, what Tanaka? Tanaka, yeah, Tanaka certainly looks like him, and he's got all the all the best ideas come from him. And uh, Kubo is the guy who basically just executes the ideas. Well, Kubo is the guy that like is able to like monetize a form of business plan, right? Like he basically manages to turn like hardcore otaku them into like a business strategy right but after uh tanaka says hey here's how we'll do it and then the, the other you know yeah he, exactly in the in the afterwards part like he certainly takes control and that, that that gets all wacky but like in the beginning it's like hey i'm gonna tell you we can make garage kits and people will buy them and then yeah kubo takes it and uh turns it into a business well, then, Kubo's kind of the one with the vision thing without whom it might not have ever become a business. Yeah, yeah. It, it, yeah, exactly. He's he's the one that's able to to, to, uh, to like monetize it and scale it, which, you know, having I I respect that now having done that myself pivoting into like more business or operations of my industry, so. That does really seem like the split between um o Okada and Yamaga though, right? Like <laughs> it seems fitting that Okada may be the guy with the ideas, and the guy who actually gets things done is uh, Yamaga. 
though Yamaga really wasn't that wasn't really true at the point that Otaku no video was made though. Like Yamaga wasn't a super inside person of Gainax at the time, at least he claims. Oh, really? Even though he had directed Oniamis, he was mainly working, you know, as a screenwriter at the time for Gainax and others, rather than being at the top of the business, which is kind of interesting that he ultimately ended up there. Yeah. Yeah, it's almost like self-fulfilling prophecy, right? (laughs) Well, I mean, he had directed Oniamis, but it, you know, hadn't done that well in my understanding. So they probably weren't in a hurry to hand him the directing keys again. Um, And then I know he, as I said, wrote this but under a pseudonym, interestingly, and also under his own name wrote uh, Gundam 0080. So in the late 80s, early 90s, he was mainly doing screenwriting. Um, And kind of coming back to the uh, that straight man thing, because like the... When and and back to the back to the OVA, I think this is kind of an interesting thing that I picked up on, which is that you know when he starts school, he's like really into tennis, and basically everyone on the tennis team is just like blowing the thing off like entirely, like his you know like his girlfriend tells him, oh, you know, like, take it easy. And like everyone else in the tennis team is like, oh, well, you know, he's like, oh, I have a big match. I'm going to go home like reasonably so we get sleep. And they're like, whatever, screw that. We're going out drinking. Mm -hmm. Um, And then it continues like to get more so like as the anime segments continue on there, where like he's at the club's booth and he's literally like, like they definitely make a big contrast because they show like all the other booths, which look like, you know, regular club booths. So there's, you know, like, three to 25 people at the booth hanging out and, you know, selling some stuff and having fun. But at his booth, he's literally the only person and is like tagging out for another person. And then he's supposed to go around the, you know, the college festival with his girlfriend and she ditches him. Um, you know, and then she kind of inquires about the tennis, but it really isn't like she's actually interested in anything. She's just kind of like, Oh, that's cool. You do tennis. Um, so it's one of these things where it's like the group that he was part of and doing, like, honestly, if the tennis club had not been run by a bunch of malingering losers who didn't care about anything, he would have stuck with it. But they didn't care. And he finds this group with a person that he happened to know, but it doesn't really seem like he knew uh, Tanaka like super well. He was kind of like, a you know, an acquaintance, somebody kind of knew. But he ran into this group of people that are whilst it's an odd thing, you know, coming from the outside group and probably even, you know, definitely more so in the early eighties, they were very seriously focused on it. And I think that, I think that really drew him to it. Like, and it's one of those things where even like his girlfriend, before he gets really committed to it, she's like, she says that, you know, she, you know, envies people who can focus their minds on something and then, you know, gets all the just not the that Sonoda, you know, funny how much red, of a red cheeked, how much of a hypocritic, like hypocritical statement that really is when you see what happens as, yeah. as his obsession with otakudom kind of continues. Yeah. Um, so I thought that was a, that was something because I haven't I haven't watched this in a while and watching it. I was like, I was like, Yoshiko, like she sucks. She's terrible. I don't like her at all. She's she's the enemy. The show, 
like when I originally watched this show, I was like, I didn't fully appreciate it, but watching it again, um, originally it was kind of like, oh, look, it's so weird. Look at these, these nerds, but they love it. But now it's kind of like, it's interesting that it's from, it's, it's definitely written from the otaku perspective. Um, and yeah, it portrays the kind of normies as a uh, very superficial and shallow, um, and the otaku kind of looked down on them. But then it's also very, uh, open eyed about how kind of messed up and obsessive the otaku are. <laughs> and I really appreciate that. Like it's, it's, it's unashamed, but it also shows that like you see Kubo kind of getting a little too into it. Like, and it's like, yes, his girlfriend is superficial, but, uh, he's also kind of letting this, uh, kind of, kind of ruin his life. Um, so in a way she's a little bit justified later on. See, I don't think so. Cause no. like, I, I don't think she is because like, this isn't a thing where it's all of a sudden he's all of a sudden he's completely joined the cult. There was any number of times that she could have actually expressed some like legitimate, like interest in what she was doing. And it's also very, it's also very a weird relationship. It almost seems like, Oh, they're dating, but like they only like hang out for coffee or talk like once a month or something like that, which seems weird. Yeah. But, but even with that, like this thing goes on, like, you know, like, you know, for months and she basically just like continuously like blows him off and like, doesn't know what he's doing. It's like, I don't know. I don't, I don't think that I think if, if she actually liked him and cared and wanted him to be involved, like she could have like been like, Hey, you know what? Let's maybe I shouldn't blow you off and not give you any attention for like three months at a time. I, I give her, I, I don't mean to say that she's a, a good person in this. And certainly she is not. And she proves that throughout, but uh, I can understand breaking up with the guy when he's like not bathing and, taking care of himself and, and doesn't even know busy, what day it is like lining up for midnight releases of things to pay any attention to her. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I, I don't disagree that the, the breakup was like the breakup was fine, but it wasn't the other weird part about that too, is like that it wasn't even like a breakup. Like she literally yeah. just, she, she ghosted him and they didn't, they didn't have the term back there, but she totally ghosted him. Oh yeah. Such I mean, that that's that's pretty normal for Japanese like is it relationship yeah cheating in relationship in Japan is really common um it's been that way it's actually I th- like a pretty normal like even now in their more woke you know culture it's still a pretty normal thing um a huge percentage of of people cheat on their significant others in Japan um I don't have the numbers on me but it is. It is a very large number, and it's self-admitted too. Like people have surveyed are quick to admit it, so it's a mm. uh, not not to say it's good. I don't I don't think it's good, but it, I think it was a socially much more normalized thing. So because traditionally breaking up just doesn't like people in Japan just suck at communicating in one one on one with like with anything romantic. It's always been that way. So I think just you know he was expected to read the room. When she, you know, hadn't talked to him for a while, and you know, I think she, the expectation was that him, you know, being diving into his his otaku obsession with his new friends and her not actively reaching out to him should have been the signal that they were done. But you know, he didn't. I mean, the guys are 
guy, you know, guys need to have things told directly to their face, right? So, um, <laughs> yeah. he, and he found out the very hard way when he tried to call her, and you know, random other dude picks up. So who's already who's already calling her Yoshiko by her first name? Exactly, which is a big tell. Well, it's that. hard to say how long it's been since they've talked, given that that point is like two years after the first part of the OVA. Fair, but there was still an expectation, I think, on yeah. on Kubo that there was a relationship of some sort still, right? Yeah. Um and this this is this we're we're to the point we're jumping all all over in, in time here. This is kind of like towards the end of the first episode. But I I figured I did a little looking at stuff there because they were um like they were at the premiere for uh for Nausicaa which was the 11th of March, 1984. And that's where they started having the discussion of, oh, we could have, you could have, uh, well, you know, she could, she could go and be a Minmay, but he goes to call her, but it's not the next day because in the background of his room is a, do you remember love movie poster? And that didn't come out until July. So unless he had gotten like a full size movie poster, like before release, um, you know, that was like another three or four months later. They could also have not been paying that much attention to the exact date. See, I disagree with that. Yeah. I think they were there. Every so many dates in this thing are so precise down to the, down to where there's a earlier, one of the earlier, uh, scenes at the coffee between, Kubo and and Yoshiko and he's talking about going to the it's talking about oh it's the sixth it's the he just says oh it's the 16th we're going to the premiere of of, of Unico you want to come and I looked it up and it's Unico it's like the third Unico movie Unico and the Island of Magic premiered July July 16th 1983 oh I mean I totally expect if they're going to name a date that they're going to get it right for sure but I just don't know about these the poster o- these the other background. things I don't know. I'm I'm very suspicious that they probably just looked at a photo they had of their room on the exact date, and they're like, "Oh yeah, this is exactly what was here." Okay. Yeah, yeah, it's possible. Yeah, I'll give it to you. You you could be right there too that they really wanted to put the DIY the the Do You Remember Love movie poster in the background, but it could also be that he just delayed looking yeah, ca- calling her for another four months. <laughs> yeah, he true. Didn't think about it until he actually saw the movie and then went, "Oh yeah, she could be." <laughs> I wonder what she's been up to in the like six months since we've talked. <laughs> but that that's a good point on the uh, not actually communicating and just kind of the expected reading the room stuff. Because from my perspective, I'm like, what in the heck is even happening beneath these two? It's ridiculous. But but you're right that that it is much more of a uh, a cultural separation there. Okay. I want to jump to a completely different thing and kind of back more towards the beginning when he first meets uh, the crew, I'll call them in the, in the elevator around the the six minute mark. Uh, Everyone shows up. There's all sorts of crazy, everything in there is a crazy quote from something. But the one that I picked up on was the uh, shoot. I forget the the person's name, but the tall guy with the, with the ponytail. Um, And he says, um, He's the he SF Otaku, right? Yes. And he says Shar he says uh, Shara's novel of, of Gundam's most most infamous line ever, the Mitome Takanaimono Dana Jibun Jishin no Wakasa Yue no Ayamachi to Yumono O. So what I noticed here when he said it, because I am, you know, possibly some sort of 
Gundam Ota was that he he when he quoted it there he did not say the Jubun Jishi part he kind of did a slight misquote of it whereas he says the Mitome Takanai Monodana Wakasa Yue no Ayamachi Toa so it's like he drops a couple of, of the lines there um and I was curious if this was something that was intentional or not because in portrait of an otaku of an otaku too uh the one who at the end dons the shara mask he said and that that person says the quote but he says the full quote exactly correct as it said in uh in gundam tv and gundam movie one and the translation that the subtitle translation they give is the same which is what which is the um Animago translation, which is one does not care to acknowledge the mistakes of one's youth, which I think is a pretty good translation of it. So I then went and looked at all my other different sources for that line to see if it was said differently in any spots. And the the Japanese is the same in in all the other different places. I went to episode one of of Gundam from Crunchyroll, and then I went to movie one. Uh, both from my Blu-ray and then looking on Netflix. And here's where things get interesting. So the Crunchyroll and on the Blu-ray, the translation goes to no one likes to admit to them to the mistakes they've made because of their youth, which I think is also a good translation. Uh, I think I kind of I think I kind of prefer the Animago translation. I do as well. Coming from uh, a, a more native speaker point of view the netflix translation seems too transliteral uh well that's it, that's it the it, crazy one it makes it feel a little uh yeah just i don't know um i i do prefer i do prefer animago's translation for it so the craziest translation because i had watched the gun moves on netflix but i didn't have the subtitles on because i have just like if i've memorized that whole thing in every language but the Netflix translation is insane. The Netflix translates that line to, it pains me to admit this, but my naivete has cost us this mission. That's, Which not, I, a, I, that's I, not even close to what the actual quote is. Yeah, you're right. I see. Oh, the yeah. one you're referring to earlier was the Blu-ray. Ah, uh, I see. Correct. So, yeah. You're, yeah. Correct. That, yeah, that's, okay. that translation is the Blu-ray. And if you watch the TV series like on Crunchyroll, it's the same, it's the same translation, which is totally fine. But yeah, the, this Netflix one, I was just like, what in the heck have you done? I'm like, uh, have you destroyed the rest of these movies with this insane translation? So they clearly have a new subtitle translation on the movies on Netflix. Uh, I don't know if it's been like a reverse translation from a dub of it or something or what. But uh, no, because they don't I don't even think they have a dub on Netflix. Um, so weird. Yeah. So th- I've gotten very meta here because I've gone on like a five minute rant on a quote and a translation and different things here. So clearly I would belong on that elevator. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think just trying to go into the, because there's to me, there's no way that they would have this would have been done in error, right? The misquote in the elevator by by I'll call him glasses. Couldn't because I don't remember his name. Um, it has to be an intentional of almost like his interpretation of it, right? Because that's what I thought too. These guys, there's, these guys are all way too 
into it in way too detail. I mean, he he especially, right? Like, he was the one that was piling, you know, more and more books on top of Kubo's yeah. lap because he, he wanted him to memorize all sorts of obscure, you know, uh, random random trivia for, for science fiction stuff. So it doesn't make sense to me that he would unintentionally flub the quote more like it's his interpretation it's like putting his spin on it because that i don't know makes him feel it's like another like level meta level of being an otaku where you can intentionally take a quote and make it your own i I, i'm just you know trying to justify it because again there's no way gainax would have let this been an oopsie right there's these guys are too detail oriented to let that just i don't know yeah and i would have said that it could have been forgivable in 82 that someone might not have had you know everything recorded on video but this group actually did so there's no way that's a fair point too the other my other thought is it could be because that was such a big scene with like you know there's like 10 people in there that it's possible that the voice actor slightly flubbed it in the echo and uh they let it oh, they let it go that's yeah, actually that's a, good a really too, yeah. really good point yeah 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 that's actually an excellent point so maybe they just let it rock <laughs> i think it's uh, like an intentional misquoting seems unlikely to me because i don't know it, i don't see any deep meaning in it but either yamaga getting it wrong or the, the voice actor loving it those sound pretty good although if the maybe if the voice actor flubbed it they can retake it right so maybe it's just proof that yamaga is not a gunota yeah maybe yeah his credentials have uh expired so i i i thought that was kind of a that was the thing that i spent you know far too long yeah clearly your 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 uh yeah. your your notes are frighteningly detailed yeah so um i want to does anyone else have anything else they want to say on on that or uh, any other topics we've we discussed up to this point? Just that I want so much of the merch shown in this, like that <laughs> Harlock sticker that I can't remember her name flashes in the elevator, which I actually did see once at a Fanime swap meet in like 2005, and I'm kicking myself for not having picked it up. Oh yeah, yeah, everything, everything there. It's that that's the all that background art stuff where it all looks so beautiful because I would say like the animation in this OVA in general, isn't like great, but the stills are really nicely done and they're just good, good stills with pans and everything. And they clearly are just like, all right, look, we're not drawing a million frames on this. We don't need to, we just need to draw that Harlock patch. Right. So put it down on the table and I'll copy it. It's definitely not a show with really, any action to speak of so yeah exactly it's uh i don't expect it to i don't judge it by it's it's by super high quality animation i feel like they they do what they need to do yeah but the art detail definitely is there right like this in this one still or where when he when uh, kubo is at the uh, festival and runs into all the cosplayers and there's that pan out where you see what 20 of them in a circle and you can if you, you're looking at the st- i'm looking at the store right now it's like oh yeah these are all very recognizable characters they're not just indescript blobs they're definitely like mm-hmm. you know very intentionally designed i mean you know if to to dig really deep i i i'm not gonna lie i actually can't id every single character and i can id most of them but like uh the 
I don't know, like the the person with, that looks like uh, holding two, holding a ladle. I'm not exactly sure what that's supposed to be. <laughs> I see, you know, I see in I see in Arerechan, I see Future Boy Conan, I see Doraemon. With no oh, wow, good eye on the Arerechan. She really is hiding there. Yeah, <laughs> real way, way, but right next to Lawson, right? So like, yeah. I get most of the the big ones. You know, uh, obviously Lupin Crew, Harlock. Uh, Queen Emeraldus. Uh, I'm not sure what the the red and blue character with the angel wings is. That that one um, is not not immediately obvious to me. Yeah. Um, and we're because this podcast we're talking about. I took I took a, a screenshot from the uh, from the college club day where uh, everyone kind of surrounds uh, Kubo, and it's a, it's a great it's a great shot. Yeah, like the I guess where I was going. With it. So the detail in the art's good enough that you you know these are if you take a if you pause the screen you can actually identify the stuff, which is you know which should mm-hmm. indicate just how much attention to detail there was for the art, even if it's not necessarily animated like stupendously. I mean, it doesn't really have to be since it's mostly a show about people talking. So. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yep. Um. So the. The portrait of portrait of an otaku, which is such there's such interesting segments and they're like every question and every answer is they're all such self indictments. Like in <laughs> yes. the first in the first one, they start like at, they get to very quickly this question, like, you know, talking about this guy of the circle and all this, you know, college stuff. And they get very quickly to this do you have any real friends? Which is just, <laughs> oh my God, how do you write that? It's such a, uh, you know, what's the statement? It's like, in every accusation is an admission. <laughs> yeah. I, I, when I first watched this, I didn't, I didn't know if the, well, I mean, I guess as you go on, but as when I started out watching him, you can't really tell if they're, fake or not but then as they get kind of more absurd you're like oh, okay these are these are fake um but again much like i was talking about earlier it's 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 nice i really like the juxtaposition between the animated part of the show which really builds the otaku up um as it goes to be like really incredible and it's interspersed with these live action interviews that really knock them all down to like basically put it all back in perspective of like <laughs> this is actually what real otaku are well i think it's more of a being an otaku is great but don't go too far otherwise this happens is <laughs> kind of also, what i take away from it i think generally conflicted feelings because being an otaku was really really negatively viewed in japan in the early 90s when this was made because of uh, what's his name? That serial killer Miyazaki, who was claimed to be an otaku because he had a large video collection, and that was what got media press. So being an otaku was seriously heavily stigmatized, and in some ways, this video was an attempt to push back against that, while at the same time <laughs> acknowledging <laughs> that. Yeah, I don't know if they push back very hard, but yeah. <laughs> Considering that the only people that are going to see this are people that are super into it because this was not like this was you know a hugely mass market video i have to imagine it turned a lot enough a certain amount of people off too right like to watch this you're it's like a subset of a subset of people who enjoy this 
Yeah. I definitely had the same I definitely had the same feeling, Sam, when I when I first watched this. I was like, oh wow, these are real interviews. And like and then and then as it goes on, you're like, okay, I think <laughs> I think you're playing a little joke on us. All right. So well played. <laughs> I guess I have I have a dirty secret that I think this is the first time I've ever fully disclosed this, but the very first time I watched Otaku in a video, which Oh gosh, uh, I was, I was like in sixth grade or something like, you know, not, not like old, not like young, young, but definitely not old. I, 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 I just picked this up from the rental place. I'm like, oh yeah, I like, it's, 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 it's I'm, I like otaku stuff. That's cool. Oh, it's an anime. Cool. And then as soon as the first, uh, portrait of an otaku segment started, I fast forwarded through because man, I don't want to watch this live interview bull crap. And yeah. I started fast forward, and so I literally fast forwarded through half of the content. I was like, man, I just want to watch the anime. I don't give a crap about these losers they're interviewing. And it wasn't until I was in high school where then I like, it it we were doing like a like a uh, just a you know up all night watch watch random anime thing with a small group of friends. I'm like, oh yeah, this one was. This one was, uh, was was hilarious. It's like a huge, you know, it was like a, you know, I was trying to be like the hipster high schooler. It's like, yeah, it's like, a, you know, it's making fun of otaku culture. So, like, we can relate to it. And then we actually watched them. I'm like, I'm like, oh, I fast forwarded. I remember, I don't, I don't, that's why I don't remember any of this. I fast forwarded through all of them. I'm like, wow, this makes uh, being an otaku look really, uh, r- really pathetic. Especially then, those later ones. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh you know what's funny is the you know, you know I I do agree in general at the, each for one gets progressive progress progressively more extreme and kind of you know it, it, you should start to kind of let the cat out of the bag hey this is a bit exaggerated but mm-hmm. I I think it's the second to last one the one where they're interviewing the cell thief is that that's one of the last ones right oh yeah yeah, yeah. you know what's that was wild. What's hilarious is that, to me, at least this is anecdotal, but to me, that one was actually probably one of the truest ones, even if the scenario itself was written, because uh, on a this is a tangent, but I remember this was a story uh, told in an interview by uh, Seiji Mizushima, who's a big-time anime director. You guys can look him up later if you want. I will just say he directed like the first Full Metal Alchemist and the first Shaman King. He's He's an awesome dude. He's really cool. I was an interpreter for him, so I was interpreting for this interview. And uh, one of his first jobs in the industry was he was one of the runners that kind of took cells from, you know, like uh, one part of a studio to another as they were wrapping up, like doing the actual imaging of them. And he was saying there was one time where he, you know, he had several bins of them and he couldn't take them all at once because, you know, like when you have piles and piles of cuts, it gets very heavy. So he, he had two crates of them or three crates of them, he couldn't take all three, so he took two of them, got into the elevator, went down to, you know, the to load them into the van to transport them, and then when he came back up, the third one was gone. Somebody actually had snuck in and stole oh, wow. them. But he said, they were all in-between cuts of, like, something that was, like, complete, like, you know, doo-doo, basically, is what he said. <laughs> so he's like, yeah, so he's like, I guess, I, he, was, he was happy that he took the important cuts first, like the key, like the keyframes first, because, yeah, he's like, yeah, fortunately, they were all in-between, so they're not worth anything. But, yeah, some random person just walked into the studio and decided to steal a bin full of, of cells. I'm like, I was in disbelief. I'm like, huh. And then rewatching, I'm talking to him like, "Hey, yeah, this I remember this. This actually does happen in the industry. Well, not oh, yeah. anymore. Not anymore, obviously, because there's no <laughs> yeah. physical cells. But I mean, back in the day, 
So. Yeah, in the commentary tracks on the Blu-ray, both sets, they agree that it was a thing that happened, even though the person who actually played the Cell Thief is one of the commentators and swears that, you know, he did not particularly like the role and had absolutely nothing to do with Cell Thievery himself. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he was he was totally, like, face-on unblurred right like so yeah he had sunglasses <laughs> uh, yeah it's true he did have sunglasses and yeah, they were wraparounds yeah they were wraparounds so you really couldn't see who it was it's almost like the uh the ladder thing right like you can get in anywhere if you just have a ladder and a hard hat like these guys just going in, <laughs> in the studios yeah. and just picking up cells and walking no. out I mean, yeah, because it's so much of it is even now, right? But even back then, uh, everything, so much of it was like contract work. So you never, you see all sorts of people coming in and out. And the security guards at front do not care, right? Like they don't actually care. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's not much of a dirty secret anymore. Like the anime industry operates on, you know, giving people table scraps at the, at the like, you know, and very entry level positions. So. And at odd hours of the day and night, so yeah, you probably could wander in and people wouldn't think nothing of not having seen you before necessarily. Yeah. Yeah, although discussing this now makes me want to uh, rewatch Animation Runner Kuromi and we should do oh, an yeah. episode on that one day for sure. Oh, absolutely. What was the other one? Uh, PA Works anime show. Shirobako? There we go. Yeah, that one. I still oh, haven't really watched that actually. It's yeah. very worth it. I recommend it. Okay. Well, that's on my list. All right. Um, I thought it was interesting, too. I did, like, because they list, like, their born years and years as, like, an otaku. So I did a little bit of, like, calculating for everyone for the interviews for, like, how old, like, were they when they were, like, first, uh, like, first claiming by this that they were an otaku and stuff. Because sometimes it's hard to conceptualize that because you're like oh someone was born in 1869 whatever i can't even figure those numbers but for like the first one they said born in 63 uh 13 years as an otaku which basically puts their 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 birth year at uh going back from 1991 puts it at 1978 means meaning this person was about 15 years old uh you know for their for their first for their first time, which, you know, 78 was, you know, first, first Gundam. So, um, uh, and a lot of them were a lot of, a lot of the people in the interviews, their people that they put in there, their first, their age at which they became otaku by this are between like 13 and like 17. Um, which I thought was kind of interesting. It was actually quite a bit younger than I was thinking it was just, you know, just not thinking about the actual number calculation there. And this is obviously, you know, everything here is, is a fun play that they're putting together. But I thought that was kind of an interesting thing that they had them all starting as being so young. It makes sense when, right. When you, when you can just watch this stuff on TV, whereas like we had to get them from like video stores or, or buy them or, yeah, I expect most American otaku start younger now than they did when we were getting started as well. Oh, yeah. absolutely. 100%. Yeah, it's definitely easier to get access to stuff. And I think as well, there's less... I'm certain there's there's always still stigmas or anything that's not whatever is the, the cool thing, but it's less of a stigma and there's more normalization across stuff being things that like... uh 
oh, I forget his name. There was a, there was a big article. Uh, so it was Ion Williamson, like a major NBA star. Like he had a whole thing of being like, he's like a huge, like Narutard. Oh yeah. Um, and yeah. it was an interesting thing there. They were telling it is like talking about like a lot of athletes. They're really into like Naruto and like Dragon Ball and stuff. And they're like, well, it kind of makes sense. Cause what do you have? You have these people that are really good at something and then they go and hyper focus on this thing and get to like insane abilities that are beyond any sort of mortal persons. You're like, yeah, that is kind of what you have to do to be a professional athlete is yeah. focus on the thing to the detriment of everything else in your life. Yeah, I mean, another prolific uh, example is uh, the UFC middleweight champ, Israel Adesanya. He's a self-proclaimed celebrated weeb. He adores Naruto, and he actually is the world's biggest Rock Lee fan. I think I talked about this with you guys, where he had a face-off with, with Anderson Silva, who's like one of the most legendary fighters. And just by happenstance, they replicated the, the Rock Lee and Gara, like stare like stare down where Rock Lee's doing kind of that crane pose with the Bruce Lee, you know, come on hands and and you know, Anderson Silva standing with his arms crossed a la Gara. And it's like that was like, you know, one of the most like meta uh like fangasm moment for Adesanya. <laughs> it was freaking hilarious watching Dog about it. Here's this guy who was literally like one of the, you know, baddest men on earth and he's just this he's just just weeping out about this moment where he got to live his Naruto dream. I'm like, man, times sure have changed, haven't they? One of the other things I thought was uh, on that kind of thing there was uh, about 15 minutes in, there's a thing where Koopa says, oh, cosplaying, what's that? Um, And then that's right before the, the scene we talked about where him getting surrounded by all the cosplayers. But, you know, I think it's kind of an interesting, you know, thing that that, that, probably honestly more than a lot of stuff like cosplaying has become like such this major part of like you know not even not even like anime culture alone just kind of like almost like pop culture you know such that you go on like like kotaku you know major gaming site they have like a permanently devoted section on their like front page to cosplay and that at these huge you know conventions at san diego comic-con and all the other conventions, like a huge portion of the draw is cosplay for both like viewing and participating. Um, so I thought that was kind of a, an interesting thing, just seeing that that has actually become such a huge part of the culture beyond otaku culture. Though the interesting thing is, I believe Japan got cosplay from American sci-fi convention fandom bleeding over because... Dressing up in costume was a thing at American sci-fi cons for, and having costume contests. Because they were, when they were doing, like, making, not making, but um, at least the Gainax guys, when they were doing um, their sci-fi conventions, I know that they were looking a lot to the, the American cons to model their stuff after. Yeah. True, it's... though they were also, you know a series of Japanese cons that had been running for a long, long time and had been heavily cross-pollinating with American fandom for that time. Yeah, yeah, although the, the Gainax guys were not happy with the existing conventions at the time. Mm -hmm. It's one of those things, like, with the anime business and the whole thing of uh, Tezuka being you know, inspired by Disney and then Disney getting inspired by Japanese and everything cross-pollinating back and forth. Well, it's interesting. The Daikon 3 convention program guide, the whole front of it is like letters from various sci-fi authors around the world congratulating them on the con. 
and huh. you know, sending <laughs> their cool. well wishes. That's interesting. Have you guys heard the anecdote about Tezuka and the Daikon? Mike probably knows. Oh yeah, that <laughs> Tezuka noticed a uh, you know watched it and said it essentially that it was very good, but he couldn't help but feel something was missing, namely <laughs> any of his characters. Yeah, except he didn't say that it wasn't his characters. Um, I forget. Yeah, he <laughs> just said that he felt like there was something missing. <laughs> yeah, and then they're like, hmm, and then later on they're like, oh, he meant we didn't put any of his stuff in there. <laughs> so we're talking about the the Daikon three and three video uh, mm-hmm. that it did, which is a crazy one. I'm sure you can find it on the on the YouTube's, but it does not have any Tezuka characters in it. It has quite literally everything but Tezuka characters in it, probably. Yeah. Well, I mean, four more, though, four hats. You're right. I'm thinking of four beyond three. Three three is definitely the rougher looking of the two. It's crazy that back in those days where the the creators were like, yes, why isn't my stuff in here? All the other copyright infringement is in here. Why aren't you infringing on my copyrights? Yeah. Now, if you put Dyke on four on YouTube now, you you might get the most copyright strikes in the history of man with the amount of license, like how many <laughs> stakeholders there actually are for all those licenses. And yet it's on YouTube all over just from people who don't care if they can monetize it or not. Well, yeah, yeah, no exactly. copyright intended, of course. No, none. Okay. Um, so we're coming up on our last few minutes and I have so many more because just because this, this show has so much Deep yeah, and interesting I feel like we're going things. to two parts on this one. Okay, I mean so it's a two-part over, so why not make it a two-part uh, so we podcast? Can, we rate. can so we can say that. So we don't have to uh, try to squeeze in, uh, squeeze in everything here. So one thing that I I, I want to come back to, which I think we can probably spend the last little bit, which I thought was such an, a weird, interesting thing. So they have the the porch of the otakus, and they also have these little kind of uh news breaks i'll call them and some of them are talking about releases of anime or things like that but then the first one i think is uh, about 15 minutes in and they put in there this this news break that you know the british invade the falkland islands and i was trying to figure like why why did they ch- and then they have several other ones that are these other like real world news breaks for events and i'm like why put those in here? I think to try and date the various segments, kind yeah. of. Because I believe the Falkland Wars were in 82, so it was meant to be like contextual to the time that the OVA was being made, I believe, it was the point. Yeah, it was like, okay, so here's, you know, some references of what was going on at the time that the thing in the OVA is happening. Oh, I didn't take it as such a literal thing, like, oh, literally, this is like, we're going to say that it's this date here, that this is this is what's going on in the outside world. Well, I didn't take it And they just kind either. of chose, they yeah, just kind I'm of chose something. I'm not sure if it's precisely dating the segments or if it's choosing something real world that happens between the segments in the gap, but either way, it's giving you at least some sense of that time is passing and things are happening, even if you can't date it by looking up the date things premiered, for example. I, I'm, I'm fairly certain the way that the uh, those headlines are spaced and their timings is it's supposed to show the progression of time in the OVA timelines because the Falklands happened in 82 
And then I want to say one of the later ones they're talking about, you know, the premiere of of Macross Do You Remember Love, if I recall. And that was like yeah. in, like summer of 84. So, yeah, we're going to come back to that one next time. We're going to come back to the, that release next time because I, I need to discuss that. Oh, of course. Um, but, I was but, just trying to frame, frame this question. That, yeah, you know, no, you are. Of course, once they depart from reality, they get even more fantastic, like space 1999 <laughs> yeah in 1999 like Mar- mars is colonized or something like that <laughs> um okay yeah because the british invade falkland was uh may 1st 1982 and it is true that they they do go forward i think the next news cut is is a february 1983 about uh uh assault of homeless people in yokohama I was I was trying to look up this and it was probably in a cult, uh, an area of it, of a Kotobukicho, which was a uh, uh, pretty rough rough neighborhood there for uh, workers and stuff. Yokohama in the eighties was kind of like a pretty rough around the edges. Um, yeah, and the, yeah, place to be um, too. So, okay, well, I will. Uh, we're about out of time here. I will. We'll just open the floor if anyone has a quick thing they want to share for now. But if not, we will continue this with Otaku, with, with Zoku, Zoku AMO, Kenzoku, Otaku no Video. All right. So with that, uh, this is AMO Kenzoku signing up for now, saying Sarabar. It's um but Okay. Yeah, exactly.